Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening and welcome to the Hollywood Babylonians. Hello, 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 friends. This is your happy Hollywood history host, Mr. Ben Burke, back today with that wonderful singer, actor, and dancer of the off-Broadway and Broadway stage, Miss Ruby Rakos, as we continue to discuss Vincent Minnelli's charming holiday musical Meet Me in St. Louis from MGM in 1944, starring Judy Garland, Margaret O'Brien, Lucille Brimmer, Leon Ames, Mary Astor, Marjorie Maine, Harry Davenport, and Tom Drake. Only on the Hollywood Babylonians. There, do you have like any other notes, anything that you really like to share? I mean, for the film itself, I think my, my favorite part is probably Margaret O'Brien as Tootie. Yes. Um, she's so strange, so morbid, <laughs> um, you know, with giving her dolls funerals and burying them in the backyard. Mm -hmm. Um, and all the stuff with the, the Halloween was very strange. I it was Halloween in 1903 involving like a bonfire in the street and like kids dressed as like little hobos and like throwing flour. on. I know the flower part, but, um, yeah. throwing flour at people, but I didn't, I didn't know. Like, I mean, it was, it was like Lord of the flies out there. I read I, up on it, and yes, that's something that actually happened, because it was like they were all cross-dressed. Yeah. All of these little children were cross-dressed. It looks like a riot that we've seen in recent years, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> and these children go out, and they try to kill the neighbors that they uh, that they hate most with flour, um, and I know that sequence was almost cut from the film, but it did, it did wonders for Margaret O'Brien. Yeah. Oh, man. Little Margaret O'Brien. She's just, she's just a trip. Yeah. Um, but I have to say, I mean, the scene, you know, after uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, where she runs out into the snow and beats up the um, the snowman that they built. I mean, what did they do to that girl to make her break down like that? Because I was like, this, I mean, no five, six-year-old has the acting capabilities <laughs> to no. do that. Um, and it wouldn't be odd even today, really for a child actor to be, I don't know, kind of traumatized into having that sort of response. I mean, it was really, 
it was really intense. <laughs> I mean, you might have heard that. <laughs> yeah, she does. She kills those snowmen. She takes that bait. Does she take a stick? Not a baseball bat, but a stick. I, yeah, I think it was a stick, but like just like her like heaving sobs and just like, I mean, I was like, this is a actual five-year-old having a complete meltdown. Right. It's like you're going full Betty Davis on everybody. Yeah. And yeah, and so I, I like all I could think was like, what did they do to her to make her do that? <laughs> well, and that leads us to another interesting point. Um, they told so Margaret O'Brien, I believe, had a little pit bulldog or some little puppy that she had just gotten, and Margaret O'Brien's mother told Vincent Minnelli, everybody that was working with her on that set. In order to get her to cry, you tell her that this little puppy has died. And that's how they got her to cry, which I'm like, why would you tell a child of that? Of course they why? did that. Of course they did that. Okay, course, that makes sense. Yes. And that's why she was, yeah. Oh, man. At five or six, if I had a puppy that died, I would have had a full emotional meltdown, too. Yeah, and in acting, all you have to, I mean, honestly, there's a, I mean, kids have such a wild imagination. I mean, all you'd have to tell her is like, it, pretend that he did die like he's fine but right. like how would you feel if he did like yeah. what would you miss and like kids have a really good imagination like that's all acting is right you know i mean you didn't have to convince her that her puppy was actually dead <laughs> yeah margaret had been signed to the studio at four or five several years before she her mother took her to the studio got her into the office of like mayor or freed and Manelli was in the office and she was dressed in this little plaid kilt and little cap and she was giving this big scene and Manelli was like wow she is amazing now you would be like oh come on this is ridiculous they they signed her to the studio they started her in several i think journey for margaret was one of them and the canterville ghost which were big uh, big vehicles for her and also MGM was obsessed with Shirley Temple which they never could get who at one time I think was supposed to play Dorothy but they couldn't get her from Fox yeah Margaret O'Brien I know that Vincent Minnelli said that uh, because after the first several years that Margaret was at Metro she had worked with their resident acting coach and when Margaret came on set she was this big huge Shakespearean actress everything was over the top and Manelli said that added a lot of time that he had to sit and work with her and work out all of these this big big performance that she was getting because she had worked with I can't remember her name but she was the resident acting coach at MGM the older she got the less money her films made which is you know kind of common for a lot of child stars <laughs> So I know that a lot of the Sally Benson stories, which are the 3531 Kensington Avenue stories, a lot of the sequences were true to life. Oh, also talking about Margaret O'Brien, John Fricke in the commentary that I was just listening to. So the sequence, the Halloween sequence, where Margaret O'Brien claimed that she has been beat up by the boy next door, you know, and then Judy goes over and gives him a piece of her mind, which I think is one of the great uh one of the great sequences in classic film musicals because it's like yeah we're not going to take it anymore i am woman hear me roar in the not in the book the kensington avenue stories the sequence where tootie was beaten up really took place and she was beaten up by the boy next door 
but things such as this, like little girls being beaten up by older older men, you know, even you could drop the R, wo- R word in there, that four-letter nasty little R word, um, were not talked about a whole lot. So this was something where Tootie really was beaten up by the boy next door. Her father went over and had a talk with the boy next door's father about what had happened. And he was like, oh, I'll, I'll talk with him. And they exchanged cigars. And that's all that happened. You know, and that is the only time that the boy next door came into the Kensington Avenue stories. It was the idea that one of the girls was madly in love with him came from the mind of the screenwriters, which I found fascinating. So this, yeah, so this rapist boy next door uh, in the movies, well, in the movie, Judy Garland's love interest was really this rapist boy next door in the books, which is, yeah, I know we're unpacking, we're, we're sounding woke now, aren't we? Um, unpacking. Yeah, they would have. They yeah. They would have never put that in the movie. <laughs> no, no. Um, that no, that would have been a lot. But that, I mean, that is really the darkest sequence in the entire film because that's very dramatic sequence for a family at that time. I know families at that time lost children at a higher rate than they do now. But for them to lose a member of the family like that, and you could see that in the movie, they're all you know overwhelmed at the thought that Tootie something could have happened to Tootie. And um, anyway, it might have happened to Agnes. I know a lot. Sally Benson based the character of herself on Agnes or Agnes played Agnes with Sally Benson in the books. But because Joan Carroll was less known, everything that happened to Sally Benson happened instead of to Agnes. It happened to Tootie in the movie because Margaret O'Brien was the bigger star. So um, do you have anything things about this film that you do not like? Most of the music I'm not a big fan of, other than, like, the original, like, other than, like, you know, The Boy Next Door, Trolley Song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, like, everything else is just, yeah, it's those, like, those songs they come up with to do, or, you know, they pull out of, you know, some old book to do Mm -hmm. for, like, a big... Um, dance number you get a lot of that with like you know stuff like strike up the band you get like really weird songs that they decide to do for like a big dance number the Um, la conga the la conga yes exactly (laughs) oh i do love that movie yes (laughs) drummer boy is like oh so amazing i mean mickey rudy is in and such a good drummer yes so the fact that like everyone's using someone else's trumpet is really grosses me out. I know. I was gonna. I was, I, that's, and like no one's like, upset about it. Uh-uh. <laughs> that like the Paul Whiteman jazz band is like, all right, they sound pretty good. And it's like, yeah, what about it's like all that? he's using my trombone. It's like five thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like they're putting all of their saliva and DNA into these instruments. Why aren't you angry? But it is. It is a great number. So yes. I could see why they'd let it slide. Yeah, so those those numbers are not my favorite. Yeah, I think that's probably my least favorite part is those like bigger, yeah, group numbers that aren't, you know, the trolley song, basically. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And I mean, I can see that. I know Skip, Skip to My Lou wasn't written by Blaine and Martin, even though they're credited with writing yeah. that song. It had been a folk song for some time. Yes, of course. They're the people that came up with the arrangement for yeah. that. It's just precarious film because it's made so well and so beautifully, but at the same time, for our sensibilities today, it's like it does it it doesn't seem like it has much of a plot. It's about, you know, a privileged white family living in turn of the century. Yeah, turn of the century St. Louis. And it is. It's a very beautiful film. It's very well constructed. Judy, it's one of the very first times that I think she really, really got to show off 
her talent as a very, you know, impressionable young woman with great expression. And she had beautiful eyes, which you never really had seen before. So Yeah, it's the um, it's the white eyeliner on the mm-hmm. on the waterline really just like makes her eyes pop. Well, and I didn't even notice the white eyeliner until John Fricky said something about it on the commentary and I was like, Oh, now I notice it. You know, yeah. in, in Technicolor you see everything. Boy, were they gonna show you color. Um yeah. <laughs> yeah. there was one quote that I now can't find who said it, but it was about um the costume design. because uh, mm. um the costume designer uh Irene Shira. Yes, Irene. She was <laughs> trying to, you know, be very oh i found it i found the quote okay her attempts at the 1903 costume design and like trying to be like realistic and like Mm -hmm. um historically accurate (laughs) arthur freed was like how could you have a star with no cleavage i heard that yeah yeah so i mean they found a way to do it but um well he said that he said that mary astor they you would believe it on mary astor but you couldn't have an ingenue in a film with no bosom you know right which was which is what he said always coming back to sex yeah well whereas you you know they used to be upset about judy having a bosom so exactly how how the how the turns have tabled i know they pressed it down for wizard of oz and now they're trying to yeah and earlier movies too well because they thought she was fat that's the problem but that red dress she wears at the ball is gorgeous Mm. i love that red dress and that is one of Manelli's favorite colors was red. You watch, I mean, and you can tell in the pirate a, she's in red. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Brigadoon that Manelli directed, uh, Sid Charisse and like the big pivotal number is in red. In Gigi, there is so much red that you can barely stand it. Um, and movies, uh, well, and red is my favorite color. It's gorgeous, and I think he uses it very effectively most of the time. In Bells Are Ringing, the, there's a big party sequence where Judy Holiday wears a red dress. You know, it, his ingenues in the films, really, in the big pivotal scene, it was like he was going to always have them in red. And then throughout this entire movie, you can tell red is his favorite color because the entire house, all of the drapes are red. There's red lampshades everywhere. There, you know, and it, it gives it a very beautiful beautiful look i don't think red was quite used in technicolor as it had been in this film irene sheriff who is fabulous she designed so many costumes for Manelli during her time at metro and then she went over to fox she designed the costumes for the king and i for um oh not oh she designed them for hello dolly which actually in hello dolly a lot of the extras are wearing costumes from meet me in st louis so Anyway, she was great at um, she was great at kind of period pieces or like big, big musical things. And she's one of my favorite costume designers for Metro. But she's another one that said that um, during this time, Mayer kept calling Judy his little hunchback. And he said every time he said that, I wanted to hit him as hard as I can because he said you. She said, you know what that does to a little girl that already thinks she's so ugly. Uh, well, I didn't realize that he was still calling her that at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, um, and that's what, well, and it's like, why are you, the, Vincent Minnelli just proved your point wrong. She's not a little hunchback. She's gorgeous. Yeah, it was those those earlier films, because, I mean, she's like 13, you know, right. she's going through puberty. She's also 4'11", you know, she's a very small person. Right. And, you know, because she wasn't, I don't know, Lana Turner, she was, you know, they didn't want to, they didn't want to see her. 
And I, I yeah. honestly think like her posture wasn't bad. It was just, I think, around people who she couldn't be herself with or she wasn't safe with was really, right. you know, what sort of brought her in to herself. Um, exactly. Because when you see watch her perform and, you know, around the people that, you know, know and love her and care about her, you know, she's fine. She's very open. From what all I've heard is she was very open. She was very witty. She was a very funny person and great person to be around. But yeah, she, I think she was built differently than the glamour girls at MGM because, you know, she had, I've heard that she had a shorter torso than most and longer legs than most. And that, you know, when she was trying to grow into herself as a teenage girl, that, you know, that's when they were giving the, her the hard time. If Bob's Burgers has taught us anything, I don't know if you watch Bob's Burgers. There's a character on there, Tina. It's like, of you know. Course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, we're, I feel like we're all Tina at parts, but Judy, starting out at the studio, was more Tina than most. So, yes. uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's that's is, a good comparison. Yeah. yeah, I mean, why would you ever talk to a little child that way? Oh, I was going to say something else. Or um, at this point, a grown woman. She was exactly. 20 years old. She was an yeah. adult. Which I feel when I was 20, I was still very much a child. And I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but the fact that people keep calling her a little girl, like uh-huh. even like Joe Mankiewicz is like calling her that, you know, she's a very like, you know, what did you say? Like messed up little girl or yeah. broken little girl. Uh-huh. And I was like, A, you're in a relationship with her. <laughs> right. <laughs> she's a, an adult. Um, yes. You know, she's like 18, 19. So right. like, sure, she's not like you know, a full grown woman, but she's still not a little girl. <laughs> exactly. She's much bigger than that by now. Yeah. Anyway, we could talk about it. It just makes, it makes me angry. And I feel like a lot of that went on. It still goes on today, unfortunately, but I mean, Metro. Oh, I was going to say something about Lana Turner. Too. Oh, Judy told, I think Joan Crawford that she felt like a little polywog because Joan and Judy were at the studio at the same time and they were good friends. But also she told her every time, because she tried, when Lana got to the studio in 38, Judy tried to befriend her. And she told her that she was in love with Mickey Rooney. Lana Turner went on to date Mickey Rooney for a long time. She told her that she was in love with Artie Shaw. Then she turned around, whoops, she's with Artie Shaw. So it was almost like Lana was just like going after guys that Judy wanted. And she even, well, Lana even went after Tyrone Power after Judy was through with him. And she, Lana said that Tyrone was the great lost love of her life. Uh, I also, also, wasn't Tyrone Power also a closeted gay man? He was bisexual. Yeah. And so he. Oh, okay. He was bi. Yeah. He, he yeah. slept with a lot of the women and a lot of the men. Got so it. So he had them both. And um, I know yeah. Judy ran off with him at one point. She did. And yeah. I believe, yeah, she did run. She tried to run off with several people. And she told him because his wife was not going to let judy marry him his tyrone powers french actress wife was not going to give him a divorce so judy told the french actress wife that she was going to have a baby which people don't know if is is real or not but you know eventually she said you know well i've lost the baby um and she did that to joe mankiewicz also and joe kind of played along because he 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 said in his memoirs he kind of felt sorry for her so anyway he played along with the baby and then he finally asked her to do another pregnancy test and um she you know she it did not come up positive i just thought talking about lana i don't know if you've seen many films with lana uh turner there are several good ones such as green dolphin street the bad and the beautiful imitation of life 
but Esther, a lot of the women at Metro did not like Lana Turner. You know who Esther Williams is, or you've heard of her before? Yes. Uh, yes. Big Technicolor Aquacade musical star at Metro for a long time. And they all, they all had to, the, the Technicolor stars had to um, deal with the thing before they shot called a lily, which was a very, very heavy, big piece of slate. And they had to hold that while they focused all of the, they color balanced the entire picture because Technicolor is just, it's, it's really, really ripe. It is like colors on cocaine. And I think it's gorgeous, but at sometimes it's just too much. But um, Esther Williams said she would have to stand in the swimming pool and hold it over her head for like 20 minutes while they color balanced everything. And she said, you know, I often wondered what Lana Turner was holding while I was holding this damn slate. She And, you know, she said I knew what she was holding and it was Louis B. Mayer's dick. A lot of people did not like Lana. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, she was she was very ambitious and, you know, she knew how to get what she wanted. Exactly. And I, yeah, I mean, I wish I had Lana's well, That's how, you know, unfortunately how you had to kind of do it at that time. Exactly. And that's, that's another problem. Talking about Judy more also, like we talked about, I talked, we did All About Eve like two episodes ago and look, reading in the life of Joan Crawford, a lot of these women had to be, they knew that it was a man's world and they had to be smarter than that because they were business people that had to keep themselves going. I feel like, and they had great longevity with their careers, but with Judy, I feel like she was just kind of thrown into it and she did not exactly want. She, I feel like she was a very intelligent person. If she wanted to have that kind of be smarter than the men that were running the show, she could have, but at the time she just really didn't care or she didn't exactly want to. I know that after 44 or 45, she had gone to New York city with Vincent Minnelli and saw New York. She loved New York. And then somebody interviewed her shortly after that and they said, well, what's next for Judy Garland? She said, well, after my contract is up in 46, I'm going to move to New York and star on Broadway. After Meet Me in St. Louis came out, the executives were like, ah, this cannot happen because she is really a goldmine now. So when she fell in love with Minnelli and they got married, the studio, um, the studio really pushed. Well, it, it was, you know, Minnelli became one of those other people under contract that was to keep an eye on Judy and keep her in line. So the the fact, you know, by the time she got to the pirate and she didn't want to be at the studio, she was, uh, you know, she she had bad, bad postpartum depression. Um, so that that was another thing that just pushed her. She didn't care whether she was there or not. She was just kind of being forced to be there at times, especially later in her years at Metro. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I yeah, I can't help but think she might have been happier going to New York. Right. Um, I mean, I mean, her concert, I mean, her time on stage, I mean, that was when she started her concert career. Um, it really brought her back to, you know, her roots of like vaudeville and performing for an audience and was really, you know, the reason she loved performing was the response from the audience. And you don't you don't get that in movies. Mm -mm. For sure. And she had started out you know, on the stage in vaudeville. And I think she loved the audience and she knew the audience loved her. And that was taken away from her when she was given the big studio contract. But I wanted to ask you, uh, since I have you here, uh, if you have any favorite films of Judy's. Oh, I mean, I love Love Finds Andy Hardy. That's probably my favorite. I just love that film so much. She's so cute. And just her and Mickey together are just... 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's just so perfect. Um, right. I love love Heinz Andy Hardy is is probably my number one. I also I also really like Strike Up the Band. Um, yeah. I wish they would dress her in something less hideous. It's like the same design dress with like these yeah. big puffy sleeves, and she's like in a variation of that dress in the whole film, and it's so ugly. Well, it's um, like ugly 1980s prom dresses throughout the entire yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, and like she wears a ver- like an, a sort of sim- – the red dress in Meet Me in St. Louis is like a similar design, but mm-hmm. it's flattering. Yes. It's like <laughs> it creates this beautiful torso. Well, it was like it was like if we make her shoulders bigger, her waist will look smaller or something. Like it's just <laughs> yeah. it's so hideous. It's so hideous. But I, lo- I love that movie. I also really like Everybody Sing. Mm-hmm. That's a really fun one. Um, it's harder to find. I think the only way I've ever watched yeah. it is I like it was in parts on YouTube. I don't even know if it's still up anymore. Yeah. Um, and that's how I'd watched it. Other than the scene where she disguises herself in blackface to get a job at the as a singing at the mm. singing restaurant. That one's weird. That part's unnecessary. She could have just put on a <laughs> fake mustache or something. Um, right. But at least it's not like Babes in Arms where you get through the whole film and then suddenly the show they've been putting on this whole time was a minstrel show and like right. no hints, no clues. And suddenly the last like 25 minutes is all blackface. Um, yeah. That came out of nowhere. Well, um, I mean, Babes and Okay, so what I remember about Babes in Arms, like the entire show that they're trying to put together in the barn, there's a giant storm that tears down the barn where they're trying to put on this minstrel show. So they don't get to put on the minstrel show. I haven't seen Babes in Arms in a long time. I know at the end of Babes on Broadway, which is one of my, uh, it was one of my favorite ones until you get to the end and that rousing waiting for the Robert E. Lee in your life. And she sings FDR Jones and uh, yeah. And it's just like, Oh man, this is such great music and such great performances, but good. And then we're going to throw the Confederacy in there just to ruin it. And not until the end. So you have no clue what you're getting yourself into until the end of the movie. And it just pops up out of nowhere. Um, well, and I think that's that waiting for the Robert E. Lee number is the most spectacular, not spectacular in the in like the good sense, but has the yeah. most spectacle of any Mickey and Judy musical number outside of, um, oh, I got rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is just it's just a shame. But I mean, we're not trying to cancel these movies. So many people are like, whoa, people are trying to. Well, cancel they're hard these to watch. That's the yeah. problem is uh-huh. like. I I just it's a hard time. It's like I'll watch to the point where it gets weird, and then I'm like, I I can't enjoy it. <laughs> it just makes me so uncomfortable. Um, and I was like, if you close your eyes, it sounds really nice. Um, right. <laughs> but but back to everybody saying, I mean, you've got Fanny Bryce in that movie, mm-hmm. and there's a scene on on a bus where they all like are running around. Uh, I don't remember the song that they sing on the yeah. bus. But I re- I really love that scene. That movie is 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 really great. 
I really mm. love that movie. And then Judy and uh, Fanny Bryce went on to do, um, I mean, Fanny Bryce, the baby Snookums character was, you yes. know, a big thing. Um, and then she and Judy went on to kind of continue that little act that they do in the movie on the radio mm. for right. a long time, too. Yes, which is great. Yeah, I haven't seen everybody sing in a hot second. Uh, yeah, I haven't very, seen it in time. years. Um, yeah. But doesn't Billy Burke, who plays Glinda, play her mother in that? Yes, Billy Burke is in it. Oh, yes. and she also also it starts with her getting kicked out of school. That's what starts right. the whole thing. She gets kicked out of school, and is it's it Swing, that... Mr. Mendelssohn's yes. Swing, which I oh my god, I love that song. We do the that song in Chasing Rainbows um, as yes. well, uh, and just at the end, she you know they get caught, and mm. she just sort of presses her nose up against the glass door um, before she leaves. Is so cute that movie's really really wonderful love finds andy hardy is probably number one Mm -hmm. i do like strike up the band i just can't stand the costumes (laughs) yeah it's unfortunate Um, because it is a it is a great movie it has some lakonga and drummer man drummer man is probably my favorite number of any mickey and judy movie for sure i mean Mm -hmm. i don't know how mickey rooney and lakonga didn't like just I mean, he must have had whiplash after that number. Because <laughs> yeah. the way he's, like, flinging his head around. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. But, yeah, no, that's... Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that Mickey Rooney was an amazing drummer. Mm. But that, and that number... And Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he played yeah. the xylophone in that, too. Mm-hmm. And then they also have that whole sequence with um the fruit. The, like, stop-motion yes. fruit story of... um. Mm-hmm. our love affair <laughs> yeah i know which is you wonder how difficult was that to shoot back in 1940 honestly um it must have been ridiculous but yeah i mean we have arthur freed also to t- thank for those movies because he had well a little bit on arthur freed people don't i don't think realize that you know he the mgm musicals that we know and love today are because of arthur freed he had been a songwriter at mgm in the late 20s with his songwriter pro- songwriting partner nashio herb brown and he had always really wanted to produce film musicals and finally he got mervyn Leroy, who was one of his friends came over to metro from warner brothers and they had always loved wizard of oz always wanted to put together a musical film of wizard of oz so they got to do that and showcase judy i think arthur freed despite him mistreating her because i know it eventually it got to the point where he was just shoving her around and picking her up and throwing her into projects. He didn't care how Judy felt. It was if she could get the work done or not, if she could make him money. But I think he really was one that recognized talent and good talent. And that's why, you know, when he started producing films, starting with Wizard of Oz and going into the Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland's uh, films, uh, he started to create his own unit, his own production unit at MGM. Which is what led to some of Judy's great Technicolor classics at Metro. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think everybody should go watch the at least go watch Strike Up the Band and Girl Crazy and Love Finds Andy Hardy because those are Strike just... Up the Band. I believe is actually on HBO Max right now because TCM has it. Yes. Well, um, yes. I was I like know... tinkering around there, and a lot of Andy Hardy movies are there. Mm. except none of the ones with judy in it i don't think no well (laughs) 
it's I've just like a bunch of Andy Hardy movies that I've never seen and I have no interest <laughs> in watching because she's not right. Me. Well, oh yeah, no, Andy no, Hardy meets debutante. It has Andy Hardy meets debutante. Yes, and, um, there and that, some... that's a good one too. Um, I'm nobody's baby yeah. is a really good song. Mm-hmm. Um, alone, the way she, that song she does really beautifully, and it sort of yes. turns the tables because she's less of the ugly duckling girl next door, and he, mm-hmm. Mickey Rooney's sort of on her turf in New York, and right. he sort of like realizes that she's like you know, or really like cool and interesting person. And, you know, she has the upper hand. Right. Even though he does, yes. of course, fall in love with a debutante, but who is a friend of Judy's <laughs> and is like in on it and like gets right. him turned back towards Judy. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And she, yeah, she, yes. I, okay, so I um, started, because for some reason they they put all of these Andy Hardy movies on HBO Max. Um, I know that, well, yeah, I started Andy Hardy meets debutante, which I had seen a lot before. And so I started it and I was like, I have seen this at least 10 times. I don't think I can watch it again, but it's a great movie. Definitely go watch it. Um, I know that one of John Frickie's good friends over at Warner Brothers is George Feldenstein, who I love because he is the film historian at Warner Brothers who owns now the RK, the vintage RKO library where like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire were in the thirties. They own the pre-1986 MGM library and they own the vintage Warner brothers library. And he's also in charge of the Warner archive, which does very expensive restorations on these classic films, put them on HBO max and Blu-ray. So I know every time they do like a new remastering or a new restoration of one of these classic films, it pops up on HBO max and they show it on TCM. So that may be one of the reasons that it's on HBO Max is like they did a new 4K scan of the camera. Yeah, well, TCM is like under the HBO Max like thing because you got like Cartoon Network and you've got like right. a bunch of other stuff. So yeah, I was – and then I mean I think A Star is Born is already on, H, on HBO Max, which mm-hmm. I have never actually finished. I <gasps> watched it on a plane <laughs> to Minnesota. Was it Minnesota? Yeah, Minnesota. And oh, the flight was shorter than the movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah so i didn't finish the movie i still like the last like half hour i've never watched oh well um, and it's it's good i think it's one of judy's best performances it is really long um and, and it, it was goes... longer like it was longer and yeah and but as a result like the movie is so like cut apart and like truncated mm. and you just get these like weird those black intercuts of yeah. the black and white with the photos and i'm like and then they uh i think the the film the extra rolls of film um with the stuff that got cut like like mm-hmm. were destroyed in a fire or something in that yeah. big fire so like we'll just yeah. never see be able to put together the what four hour movie <laughs> right i know well and I, which i would that, love to see which i think would be a better movie oh yeah well and it was it was breaking box office records across the country until well jack warner was the head of warner brothers and judy this was judy's first film at warner brothers because she had been at metros for so long and jack warner um did not get along with judy and she he did not get along with her husband sid luft who also produced it and um you know harry warner talked jack warner harry warner was jack warner's brother into cutting down the movie so they cut it down so much and then they started to get complaints like this movie doesn't make sense we're not seeing the original full movie you know so it it actually lost money at the box office because of that fiasco and then all of that footage was lost 
on you know the the um, cutting room floor except for the audio which you can hear under all of those black and white stills you know right um but yeah it does make it weird like the first time i saw it on tcm i probably was in middle school and i i thought oh that's kind of a cool artsy thing that they're doing with these black and white photos and then i was like but it's like 20 or 30 minutes of black and white photos and this feels like they're overdoing it but it's like really you know they cut out all of the footage yeah they, yes. they've done that like for like one or two time jumps like okay but yeah. <laughs> it just keeps happening you're like, where's all the movie? Where's the movie? <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, it's just black and white photos. But yes, and also you talk about that fire. A lot of people don't talk about that fire. I think it was like a 1976, 77 yeah, fire at the yeah, George Eastman Yeah, I think Eastern it was like House. late 70s. Yeah. Yes. And it was, it was the, it was because in the mid 60s, Culver City, where Metro is located, it's not a huge, at that time, it wasn't a huge booming metropolis. And they said, okay, so we have to go back real fast. The classic films up to 1953, films up to 1953 were shot on a film stock that was made of nitrate. And you might know this, nitrate is what's used in gunpowder, but it also has this beautiful silvery sheen that gave black and white this gorgeous silvery sheen. But they could not, they had to store them like in refrigerated areas uh, because if they get too hot, they could explode. If they're around, you know, certain chemicals, they will explode. Yeah. So um, Culver City in the mid 60s went to the executives at MGM and were like, Okay, so this is a threat to our community because you have this entire like warehouse you know, full of just gunpowder. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So they they made interpositives of the entire thing, like they made copies of all of it. And uh they did something that Fox didn't do, which is they made like three strip they made Technicolor inhibition. Well, I don't know. I can't uh, they they copied the Technicolor in a way that it was going to retain its luster, whereas Fox dumped all of their Technicolor camera negatives. Um, so with all Carmen Miranda, Betty Grable movies, Alice Fade, that original Technicolor is, is lost. But yeah, in the 70s, uh, they, were, they were storing all of these original camera negatives for some of Metro's biggest films, biggest um, classic musicals, well, and films in general. And I'm not sure what started it, but man, that was a fire. That was like Hiroshima going off because um, it was just all that gunpowder feeding off of one another. I, yeah, I can't even and there imagine. goes like a huge part of old right. Hollywood history. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, the, the good thing is that they had made like good preservation prints of the original Technicolor negatives and the black and white film. So when they go back and restore them, they have something that looks good. That they can restore them off of not all studios have that anymore yeah because anyway film preservation not doesn't mean as much to other people as it does to me <laughs> <laughs> do you have any other thoughts on the movie i've enjoyed talking to you so much and hearing everything that you have to say no i don't think i have anything else to say but thank you for asking me to do this um oh. even though it's you know a, <laughs> a year in the making i know um, well and of course anytime and you know, maybe I, I'd love to do some more Judy films in the future if you'd ever be interested in maybe coming back to talk about another one. Or yeah, this may especially have been one like any <laughs> anything before 1939. Like right. I, I know a lot. <laughs> Let's do Pigskin Parade next. Oh my god, she's only <laughs> in the last. That's her first her first movie. Right. She's in it. that one's on YouTube as well, I believe, is where I mm. watched that. But she's only in like the last like 30 minutes of the movie. Right. Um, and she did not like it. 
she did not like the way she looked because no. you could see all her freckles and i guess that was a problem back then like no right. one liked freckles um and she right. just hated it i mean she didn't really feel start to feel comfortable on camera until she started working with mickey rooney yeah yeah and it yeah bless his heart of all the stuff yeah. mickey rooney did one of the great things was befriending judy garland that's so, for sure <laughs> yeah yeah i did i really really appreciate you coming on today and hearing everything that you have to say i think you probably more than anything else outside of john anybody else outside of john Fricky know more about judy garland than anyone great <laughs> well and i i'm not sure about that there's a lot of people online that yeah i don't think i know that know. much i actually for someone who plays her on stage i don't know i only know like a very condensed part of her life i mean well, i know the basics of the rest right. of it but you know i feel like i really more... i really like the beginning <laughs> yes well the beginning is great and it makes one hell of a show let me tell you yeah i feel like you know more about a certain time in her life that a lot of people don't because a lot of people... yeah it's not a part of her life that um has really gotten any coverage right. um and it is just as interesting and dramatic as like any other part of her life it's just not as sexy i guess um yeah I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I she's know. 12, so yeah, I would hope not. Um, right. But yeah, I mean, just like her, the family dynamics, her early years at MGM, you know, her mm -hmm. friendship with Mickey Rooney. I mean, mm -hmm. it's all, you know, her finding her, her style, her vocal style, uh, which yes. is, you know, heavily influenced by Roger Eden's. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And Hopefully I can see it maybe on Broadway one day. I did want to ask you, um, well, first of all, to our listeners, I know you shake your head and roll your eyes. It's going to happen, Ruby. You're going to win the Tony. Everybody listening needs to go to YouTube and watch Ruby. In an, it's a number from the show, isn't it? Got a pair of new shoes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, which is, is just so much fun to watch. And I think it's several years old, but it's so awesome. Yeah, um, it's a, and a it's music a, video we did a couple years ago. Yes, and it's based on, on more a song. Than a couple. Because I got to like subtract two years from all my, <laughs> or add two years to all my like memories. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, 2020 didn't happen, right? 2020, No, and neither did 2021, really. And I'm mm -mm. starting to think 2022 didn't happen either, so. <laughs> I know. We're just lost forever. No more is life. So, uh, but yeah, that Got a Pair of New Shoes is, I think it was her first feature film at Metro, Thoroughbreds Don't Cry, that she yeah, sang so that Yeah, so Thoroughbreds Don't Cry, which that's a weird scene, too. She's, like, playing the guitar, singing Got a Pair of, trying to, like, sing to, is it Freddie Bartholomew? And Mickey and, Rooney. And Mickey Rooney. And Mickey Rooney's, like, in the other room, like, trying to take Freddie's pants off the whole time to, like, give <laughs> him a <laughs> massage. It's like... <laughs> homoerotic <laughs> it's a very homoerotic scene and judy's on the other side of the door trying to come in and play them a song it's yeah. a very very strange scene well i think freddie bartholomew is a jockey a child jockey they're both and... jockeys okay mickey, well and it... yeah but mickey's like the experienced guy and judy's the right. daughter right. of the you know, people who own the boarding house that the jockeys stay in um yeah and she's like very like dramatic and like loves acting and performing and um yes. that's that's also a pretty funny movie. She's pretty good in that one as well. Yes. Yeah, oh yeah. First movie with Mickey Rooney. Yes, and it, yeah, it's fantastic. I think Mickey Rooney's trying to give Freddie Bartholomew like massage his leg so he can ride the horse again, but that's not what it looks like. But it looks really uh, weird. <laughs> <I just laughs> taking his pants off. 
taking his pants off, rubbing his legs while Judy is singing yeah. to them. And like, but Freddie's uh, fighting him the whole time. Like he doesn't want it to happen. <laughs> I know, I know. And there's should there's a there's a type of label that you could call that nowadays, but I'm not going to say yeah. it on our podcast or my pod or our podcast. Um, I wanted to one more question, and then I promise I'll let you go. You go run and live your beautiful life. Who plays? I know your dad was played by Max Von oh, Essen. Yeah. Yes. Who's Broadway great. I live vicariously through some of these people that are on Broadway on Instagram. But who played Mickey Rooney in Chasing Oh, Rainbow? Mike Wartella. <gasps> yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Um, like I said, spectacular cast. Yeah, he's he's wonderful. He then went, I mean, was supposed to close out the season of at the paper mill in 2020. Same, mm. So Chasing Rainbows opened the 2019-2020 uh, season. And then yeah. he was going to close out the season um, with The Wanderer playing Dion DiMucci, oh which gosh. then it didn't happen until this past April. Yeah. Yeah. March, March, April. Uh -huh. um, so he finally got to do that. So he was, so he's cool. really great. So, I mean, you know, hopefully we'll see that show on Broadway too. <laughs> oh Yeah. Yeah. And all of those great. Yeah. I know it's taken a little while. I was just casting the first show since the pandemic yesterday or the day before that so anyway it's taking a little yeah. bit of time for things to come back yeah but anyway i want to like i said thank you again and if anybody any of our listeners listening today you're like i don't know if that's completely correct one of the historical facts or there's something that you'd like to add to the conversation or if there's a movie that you would like for us to talk about please feel free to write into the hollywood babylonians at gmail.com we'll read your letter on the air go follow us on tiktok instagram youtube and facebook until next time, this is Ruby Rakos and Ben Burke. Thank you for listening to the Hollywood Babylonian. You have been listening to the Hollywood Babylonians. The Hollywood Babylonians is produced, edited, and hosted by Ben Burke and co-hosted by Ruby Rakos. Audio engineering by Andrew Davis with artwork by Ben Burke and Jamie Lee. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe and follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at The Hollywood Babylonians for more Hollywood Babylonians content. Tune in next Friday, December 29th for a very special episode of The Hollywood Babylonians for The Hollywood Babylonians present a Lux radio theater drama. Meet me in St. Louis as we recreate the original Lux radio theater's production of Meet Me in St. Louis from December 2nd, 1946. Thank you for listening and have a good night.